from coast to coast to coast, you're listening to Terra Informa. Informa. I'm Amanda Rooney. And I'm Kezia Diaz. And we'll be your hosts for the next half hour of environmental news from across Canada and around the world. The concerns associated with the, a changing climate are not unknown in our world. Growing temperatures pose a threat to many livelihoods, including ones here in Canada. This week, we dive into an interview with Natalie Baird a master's student working with Inuit peoples in Canada's north to document Indigenous knowledge and explore how those practices can be applied to climate change. That's all coming up on Terra Informa, but first we'll hear some headlines from around the world. Efficiency Canada launched this week, aiming to be the national voice for an energy-efficient economy. Efficiency Canada is a multidisciplinary agency focusing on advocacy and communication in regards to pushing for renewables in Canada. The project was started by Carleton University. With a focus on economic growth in the lens of renewable resources, the organization has already released a report of the 2019 budget priorities for the federal government. On November 9th, the Government of Canada released news that they are committing over $9 million to almost 100 local-level conservation projects within the next three years. Half of the projects will be funded by the Aboriginal Fund for Species at Risk, which works with Indigenous communities and implementing the Species at Risk Act. One project receiving funding will work with Indigenous peoples in north-central Saskatchewan to create caribou range planning through the incorporation of traditional ecological knowledge. This initiative comes from the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, Catherine McKenna, and the Canadian government working towards their goal of conserving 17% of Canada's land and freshwater habitats by 2020. Natalie Baird is a master's student who is working on her master's degree between the University of Manitoba and the University of Winnipeg. Tara and former Hannah Cunningham spoke with Natalie at the Association of Canadian Universities for Northern Studies Students Conference, which took place at the University of Alberta in early November. 
At the conference, Natalie presented on her master's thesis, which involves documenting and sharing Inuit knowledge about changing oceans through the use of techniques like participatory video and participatory art workshops. Natalie's work takes place in Pangertung, an Inuit community in Nunavut located on Baffin Island. In this interview, Hannah and Natalie talk about sharing local knowledge about climate change, the accessibility of climate change science, how to make a pinhole camera, and much more. All of the, the, the culture takes place on the ice to not have access, safe access and continued access to that ice is a big issue. My name is Natalie Baird and I grew up in Winnipeg. I'm working on my master's in Winnipeg between the University of Manitoba and the University of Winnipeg. And my master's project has focused on documenting and sharing knowledge, Inuit knowledge, about changing oceans through using techniques like participatory video and participatory art workshops. Um, so a lot of what we do is we work with people to create these visual products that help share their perspectives on change and what their experience has been and what their outlook is for the future. Um, so I do all of that work in Pengertung. I work with a lot of community members there. Um, which is in Nunavut on Baffin Island. It's an Inuit coastal community of about 2,000 people. I might be wrong about that number. <laughs> and so my advisor, Dr. Ian Morrow, has had a long-standing relationship there, and he was able to introduce me to a lot of folks up there and really got the ball rolling for me because um, it takes a long time to build those relationships. And um, the majority of our work is done on camera. So uh, a lot of it is on-camera interviews, um, and to develop a rapport in that way, it takes a lot of trust and understanding of what the research project is and, and how that person will benefit from that process. That's a big driving force of our work, um, that, it is, that, the, that it's evaluated by how it benefits people who participate. Yeah, and Natalie showed her film yesterday during your talk, and it was really, I found it really moving and just like inspiring um, to really hear those voices, I think, especially in somewhere like a conference setting where sometimes it's a lot of like academia and the institution <laughs> and and so I I think it's it's good and important to have like those windows into what's actually happening do you want to um, you talked about changing oceans maybe go into a little more detail about sort of the impacts that these changing oceans are having on the community uh, so sometimes I feel like a fake scientist when I talk about climate change because because we focus and put so much energy in the human dimensions. I feel like moments like this when I'm asked to talk about what's actually happening, I get a little bit stuck. I just wanted to go back to something you said earlier, if I could. I was just in a workshop and it was about effective communication and uh, the presenter mentioned the statistic that like 7% of communication is verbal and the other 93% is like combination of nonverbal and kind of um, maybe tone and intonation. So it's really interesting. A lot of academia is based in writing and when you're doing interview-based work with people, 
um, where you're trying to get at meaning of experience and trying to like really understand their perspective and what you know what their yeah their life experience has been in relation to an issue or a topic you lose a lot of information uh, when it's just written down and especially working cross-culturally too like as a white academic from the south I don't I might the limit of my you know I learn a lot every time that I interact with people and uh, I've made lots of mistakes and it's kind of an ongoing process but there will always be a limit to my understanding so as much as possible if we can keep intact people's perspectives and share those at a space like this because it's still important mm -hmm. um, to bring those perspectives out. Um, so yeah, climate change in Peng, um, I'd say the main uh, observation that people talk about, so people we work with are elders, um, so very knowledgeable people who have been observing um, the land and the water and the sea ice for many years in order to um, know how to navigate that landscape because a lot of people in Peng still go out on the land for traditional activities or for commercial activities such as fishing and hunting. So that knowledge is super important. Um, so people are very perceptive to these very small changes that are happening. So a lot of it has to do with the sea ice. The quality of the sea ice has changed a lot and you hear that a lot in the media today too. And so uh, routes that people maybe would have normally taken are no longer safe. So the sea ice is unstable or um, it's not good ice for traveling on, like on a snowmobile. Mm -hmm. And you know, and some fishermen would talk about folks who do commercial fishing in the winter, there'd be some spots that they would go, they used to go to in the 80s, for example, that would be, they'd have to use, they would spend a lot of time digging the hole to get down to the water, and now it's just open water. Mm -hmm. So pretty dramatic effects. And that has a lot of impacts, so not just for commercial fishing, but also subsistence, subsistence fishing. So fishing people do for their families, big impacts on safety, but also culture in a lot of ways. One woman was telling me about how when she was a little girl in the springtime, they would go out egg collecting and they would go by snowmobile or by dog team, but now they have to go by boat. And even more so, like nowadays, there's a period between when the ice is solid and good for travel and when it's open. So when the ice is kind of breaking up and it's in transition that you can't travel very easily or very safely. And she was explaining how now a few, for a few years, the season when they would normally go egg gathering, that's that transitional period when, so they're just not able to do that activity. Um, so a lot of cultural activities, a lot of culture takes place on the ice. And Sheila Cloutier, who wrote this great book called The Right to be Cold. Mm -hmm. And she's really argued for um, the idea that climate change is a human rights issue for Inuit in that all of the, the, the culture takes place on the ice and to not have access, safe access and continued access to that ice is a big issue. I was reading a little bit about the anxieties that people have about global climate change is this big thing that you can't do anything about and it's it's hard to understand because it's out there, but for people, people are more likely to connect to and act on those local instances of climate change and geographical change. And But as someone in the city, it's, it's more difficult, kind of like you're saying, it's hard to pick those out. I think there's definitely that disconnect from, I think, especially in the, the urban areas and then the more rural or just on the land perspectives and 
which is too bad because so many so much of the media and everything comes from those urban and lots of the politics and stuff so also greenhouse gases yeah not necessarily from urban environments but from like um, large operations industry corporations and not not to throw industry under the bus by any means but it's interesting when the that report came out recently I think it was the IPCC that special report special report and I feel like on social media I saw people sharing their recommendations like eat less meat and uh, ride your bike and and these different turn your lights off and those are great suggestions and I think it's good for people to have agents to feel like they have agency in in this larger issue but I think a lot more energy we can do all those things but not stop there and to be lobbying our governments and to be advocating for for like yeah if, if we're not experiencing it directly in a way that we can perceive in urban environments to understand these larger implications uh, and kind of I th- was thinking about what you were saying the the lab that I work in the Prairie Climate Center at the University of Winnipeg the main thing that we have been working on is the Canadian Climate Atlas which is just climateatlas.ca and it's really trying to do that it's trying to bring together climate science and climate data in a really accessible way to people on a really local level so it brings together yeah climate data with storytelling so what it looks like is a map an interactive map that you can go and you can click. I can click on like the little town my mom was born in, in Manitoba, and it'll give me really specific information related to different models of climate about different um, points of reference. Like in Manitoba, we talk a lot about plus 30 days and minus 30 days because we have both extremes. And you can see in, you know, in a 10-year period and a 50-year period for this little town of Shiloh, how many more plus 30 days are we going to have and how many less plus 30 days can we, are we going to have? And I think that tool is really useful for that in that like in Manitoba this past summer and I think across Canada and across the world, we had like our quota of plus 30 days for the year in May wow. or something wild like that. So yeah, I would for, for, for people, if, the, if they're trying to figure out how to wrap their heads around what are, what are these things going to mean for me, um, the website also has reports for cities, which is really interesting for the top cities in Canada that kind of outlines those impacts. And then people can connect to them and then they can take action. Because I think that is, like you're saying, it's a big kind of people feel um, immobile around like the ability to take action, to have an impact. It's such a wide issue, even, you know. Another thing I've been thinking about is, I think that kind of plays into that accessibility is lots of the time I think that, especially with something like climate change where it is lots of data and long-term, longitudinal studies of data points over decades, is that it's it's in that very scientific realm lots of the time. And there's sort of this emotional part of climate change that I think that that's really important. And I wonder if sort of some of those emotional aspects of climate change is that something, like I know you talked about sort of some of these maybe senses of loss of cultural ac- activities, and was that a, a feeling that you got, that sort of like emotional side of climate change? Is that something that you think using art and filmmaking in particular can help capture more than something, like you said, like writing? Um, I think on the question of, I think a lot of our, like the research maybe that we planned wasn't super inclusive to those discussions, or maybe wasn't our intent. There's a lot of really great work happening in Nunat Siavut that I know, I, that's the one place I know about is doing this climate change and well-being and mental health. 
in drawing those connections. So that's Northern Labrador. And so there's folks that are doing it um, and drawing those connections and people that are also just expressing it. I think for me what is really captivating is you can, I mean, through storytelling, for example, in a video when you're editing together narratives, you can draw those connections without people expressing it outright. Mm -hmm. um, so we had one young man that we were um, working with in Pang that we were kind of asking him about. We had done this week-long video workshop, and the end of it was this trip on the land. And I, we were just reflecting, like, what did you think about the land trip, and how was that for you? And he just he started talking about, I think he said, you know, for me, when I'm in town, I'm always looking for this missing person and I can't find him. And it's when I go out that I find him. And then so with filmmaking, we can pair that quote, like what he said, with someone talking about um, the safety concerns with going out at certain times of year. And people can kind of draw that connection. And that's also maybe a subtle and kind of nuanced way to talk about it. But that, that's a really important thing to communicate, because I think for some people, maybe they look at communities like Pengertung and they think, oh, well, it's a, it's a modern community. People work in jobs and they uh, go to schooling and they um, do these kinds of, I guess, more Western things, people would say. But that, that cultural, uh, it's not just cultural, it's like, um, it's still a big part of who people are. Like that young man was saying, he's describing it as a missing person or a missing piece of himself, and that's really profound. Um, so there's an interesting opportunity there. And, and I think the emotional component of it and the well-being, you can do that with these um, people represented through videos. Like you can see they're expressive. And that's kind of what I was saying earlier about how much is communicated um, non-verbally. One part that I was really interested in in your talk you did yesterday was talking about sort of engaging in reflection through slowing down of the photography process. And that really struck me. That was, um, maybe it's because I've never used a pinhole camera, but that really, I thought that part was really cool. So I don't know if you want to talk about um, maybe just about the pinhole cameras and maybe how they're made and how you yeah. use those with the youth. So when I was working in Pangertung in 2017, um, one of the workshops we did with youth was at the high school, and it was called the Pinhole Camera Workshop, and then later we called it the Ocean from My Eye. So it was a week-long workshop, and youth heard from elders about climate change impacts in their community, and then we spoke with the group, the class, their grade 10-11 class, about um, what that meant for them. and and kind of getting at, so, you know, the land is changing, the sea ice is changing, the animals are changing, like, what does that mean for us, like, as young people? And um, what does that mean for the future? How can we act, or what can we do? And then we spent, like, two days building pinhole cameras. So pinhole cameras, it could be any, it just any kind of light, tight box or object that you make a tiny pinhole in, so usually you drill a hole, like, we use coffee tins, so we punched a big hole in the coffee tin and then we used an old coke bottle piece of aluminum and punched a little pinhole into that and then made our pinhole camera you paint the inside black make sure it's light tight mm -hmm. and then you put um, photosensitive paper in it like darkroom paper the school has darkroom which is pretty amazing it's like tucked into the science closet and then uh, you go outside it's best in daylight and then 
at that time in Pangatung, it was really overcast and cloudy, so the exposures took three minutes. So the youth would load up their cameras and then walk down to the docks to where the water is. We know it's like a, maybe it's like a five minute walk. And then they would have one photograph to make. They also didn't, I mean, it, it's, even as someone who's done lots of pinnacle photography, you still, I don't, I often don't really know what, how it'll turn out. Right. It's like lots of, it's very experimental. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so they would go down and compose an image and they would have to think about it quite carefully. Um, like, is this surface gonna move? Cause that could change how the image looks. Like, are there gonna be people in the photograph and they have to stay put for three minutes? Um, what can, is there lots of light that might change the exposure? And then also like, am I gonna be able to represent this thing in my photograph? So each time they went down, they had one photo to take. They would go down and take their photograph and then come back up and then we would process it in the dark room. Um, and they did that a number of times. So yeah, part of it is that it gives you a moment to just sit in your, like people who are posing in their photographs just had to sit there for three minutes. And I mean, I don't know how often I do that uh, totally. in my life, um, sit still and pose. And I think also for young people and for myself too, like I had a um, SLR camera when I was younger that I would use a lot. Um, and you have to be careful with how you compose images, but not that careful. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, but with the pinhole camera, like you gotta go back up to the dark room, load it again and go back out. You don't really know what it's gonna look like. And for these young people who have phones, like um, even just the process or the science of photography is so removed from our understanding of it. So I think, I mean, I'm so captivated by film or what would you call it, analog photography mm -hmm. in that you're capturing light from a moment on a surface and the pinhole cameras really slow that down and make it so simple to understand because the light in front of this coffee tin is being squeezed into your little pinhole that you punched and then reflected back into your camera to make a reverse upside down negative that then you can make a positive from. And I think for a lot of people, I mean, they didn't believe me at first. <laughs> they were like, well, that's not. And I think that is also really exciting for people. And I went, I mean, with photography, I also teach photography in Winnipeg um, to like on a drop-in program at a community art center called Art City. And um, we do lots of pinhole photography, partly because, yeah, again, like the young people we work with have never even thought I mean, they're amazed by even a film camera that you can't see a digital screen on. Totally. Not to mention a camera that they made from garbage. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that, I think that it's, it's like, I think it has many layers. Like, it engages people in technology that they maybe use quite a bit already but don't understand, and it breaks down the science. But it also is an interesting analogy for, like, making, I guess, science and technology accessible to all kinds of people. Like... I think maybe it can give people a sense that like, I mean, in our research process, it's a lot about having lots of avenues for engagement so that it's an inclusive process. And I think by the students built the research tool themselves mm -hmm. and then made their images, like it's a very, it's a very different process than other things, yeah. other research methods, so. Yeah. So the youth would take their picture with the pinhole camera um, and then they had to reflect on it through whatever kind of medium they wanted and I thought that part was really cool too just sort of going off the what we were talking about yeah maybe you can reflect in writing but it didn't have to be in writing so I mean even myself as like a youngish person I like get intimidated by certain things and like certainly young people there's this person they've never seen before coming into their classroom and they're like we're gonna do this thing I want you to tell me how you feel about the land it's like a pretty deep topic like I think if someone had come into my class from like 
a very different part of the country, like looks different, speaks differently, and they asked me that question, I don't know how open I would be. Yeah. Um, so through having this long workshop, I mean, it was a week, it wasn't even that long, really. You can build relationships, and then again, having different points of entry for people. So all students had to write statements, but they could kind of interpret it how they wanted to. And then some students chose to record their statements um, with audio recording. And then one young man, he wrote this really beautiful statement and he had like a very kind of like a radio voice. And I was like, <laughs> I would love for you to record your statement. Like it would sound really good. And he was like, no, thanks. It's not for me. And then we got chatting and he was like, well, I play the accordion. And then <laughs> I said, oh, well, you know, we, we kind of need music for this piece. Like, would you like to play the accordion instead? He was like, sure, I'll meet you after class. <laughs> so then he played the accordion, and that's the soundtrack for the film, which when uh, people, sometimes when people watch that film, they're like, so it's this very somber kind of climate change music, and then it, it's accordion. I'm like, why is it square dancing music? Yeah. I'm like, oh, like square dancing is a big thing, or it used to be a really big thing in Pang, and a lot of people still play the accordion. So for that space, it, it's really significant. Um, and it's fun, and it's kind of more yeah. playful and exciting, and yeah. Is there anything else you want to plug or talk about? Can I give some shout-outs? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so this work in Pang, like I was saying, I'm very new to the community. I've been there for three summers, but every year people get more comfortable about making fun of me about the mistakes I made the first year or the second year or the third year. Like this work really wouldn't be possible without the people that we work with there. Um, so I had mentioned David Poisey in our interview. Um, he's a filmmaker and a director from near Pang, but has lived in Pang for a long time. Um, he's in his, like, he's an older guy. He was one of the first Inuk filmmakers to get training in the South, and then he brought it up North um, and worked for Inuit Broadcasting Corporation when it first started. So he's a big proponent uh, of Inuit telling their own stories through film. And he was really key for engaging youth in the process. Like I was saying, I'm a stranger, but a lot of the young men that would come to the workshops would be super interested in working with David because he's another guy and they can kind of riff about the camera equipment and that's a good engagement for them. Yeah, and then the folks at the high school and then there's some youth organizations in Pang that we worked really closely with and um, the fishery and um, yeah, it just wouldn't be possible without those people and sometimes it can feel like you're trying to say this is a one-person show when I come over to Edmonton and I'm um, but it's really a team effort. That was Hannah Cunningham with Natalie Baird discussing climate and the growing role of Indigenous knowledge. If you want to hear even more stories like that, check out our website at terrainforma.ca and while you're there, look for the survey tab in the menu. We would love to get to know you, our listeners, and what you enjoy about the show. Your input can influence the content that we gather. all the time we have for this week's show. 
Terra Informa is a production of CJSR's 88.5 FM in Edmonton, which is Treaty 6 territory. If you have questions or comments, send us an email at terra at cjsr.com or tweet it at Terra Informa. Visit us at terrainforma.ca and subscribe on iTunes. Thanks this week to our contributors, Charlotte Tomasin, Elizabeth Dowdell, and Hannah Cunningham. We've been your hosts, Kezia Diaz and Amanda Rooney. Catch you next week. I can't watch the